0: It is logical to focus examination of Thomas More within an Anglo-Irish context, given the associated cultural and political narrative of the Irish melodies and certain of his literary works. However, the Irish melodies, which inspired numerous subsequent arrangements, were widely published across Europe and in America and within its first 20 years of publication, Moore's epic oriental romance, Lala Rook, was issued in German, Spanish, Italian and Swedish translation. Consequently, and as highlighted in the exhibition here, Moore's presence and reception in a wider European context merits some consideration. In this lecture, I will examine Moore's cultural presence and reception in Paris through examining his activities as recorded in key source documentation, such as his letters and journals, through analyzing references to Moore and his works published in the 19th century Parisian press, and through identifying and analyzing Imitations and Arrangements of the Irish Melodies, published in Paris during the period 1830 to 1878. To contextualise the discussion, I will examine how Moore and his work reflect aspects of the wider socio-political connections established between Ireland and France during the long 19th century. The extent to which Moore's Irish melodies influenced cultural activity in 19th century Paris will also be considered. To date, the research literature on Moore has encompassed a range of topics, all of which present key lines of inquiry, situating Moore and his work in significant contexts, including national identity and 19th-century musical criticism, 19th-century source studies and bibliography, romantic studies, performing contexts, cultural dissemination and networks, influence, reception, and reputation. Within the context of musicological and literary studies, the Irish melodies continue to receive the most attention. However, scholarly work on Lala Rook and the national airs is increasing. Given that previous studies of Moore in the French speaking world date from 1997 and 1911. I refer here to Yolanda Grise's analysis of a Canadian boat song and Alan B. Thomas's study of Moore's reputation in France. A reassessment of his cultural presence in 19th century Paris seems reasonable and justified, particularly in light of recent developments in research and renewed interest in Moore scholarship. During the course of this lecture, I will demonstrate the response of Parisian publishers to Moore's Irish melodies. I will identify the significance of the Parisian narrative to our wider understanding of Moore's reception in Europe, while uncovering the contexts for cultural exchange between Ireland and France during the long 19th century. I will begin this section with a quote. Paris, that mythical beacon of freedom, culture, and modernity, has never ceased to attract the Irish. For these exiles, who did not always consider themselves to be refugees, the City of Light appeared as a promised land, where it was possible to regain their liberty religious liberty for clergy and laity who had been persecuted for adherence to their ancient faith political liberty for patriots whose dream was a sovereign irish nation or artistic freedom for those who sought liberation from insular constraints for irish exiles from 1700 to 1916 Paris shimmered as a beacon of liberty, religious, political and artistic to attract the Irish. I have quoted here from Pierre Joannan's 2017 account, which documents reciprocal influences between Paris and Ireland, focusing on religious, political and artistic networks. While highlighting the significant role Paris played in the lives of key figures in Irish political and cultural history, including Daniel O'Connell, Charles Stuart Parnell, Maud Gonne, Oscar Wilde, and James Joyce. The connections are clearly long standing and deeply rooted in a shared cultural and political history. The work of Kevin Whelan further develops these themes, identifying and exploring the reasons why Paris has had long-standing appeal for the Irish. Whelan has stated that, and I quote, the exiled Irish were fortified by knowledge of other cultures and languages, and the confidence instilled by an awareness That they belonged to a Catholic world that flourished elsewhere in Europe. Their positive experience of that world inoculated them against the allure and the hostility of the Anglo Irish Protestant world. So, why go to Paris? In short, Paris was not Ireland and Paris was not Britain. To Irish exiles, the city offered something new, something different, a sense of freedom, and a sense of hope. Throughout the 18th century, cultural activity and particularly musical activity in Dublin had been dominated by the Anglo-Irish elite. However, following the Act of Union in 1801, the Anglo-Irish gradually departed Dublin for London, thus impacting the patronage of the arts. Consequently, cultural activity and music-making became more accessible to working and middle-class Catholics. This is particularly evidenced by the increased participation of Catholics in Dublin's music and choral societies from the mid-19th century onwards. Within this wider Franco-Irish context, it may be viewed that the legacy of the Anglo-Irish political and cultural regime left creative artists searching for a sense of national identity and recognition, while seeking receptive outlets for artistic expression. Thomas Moore may be considered outside of this category in many respects. He lived and worked in England for most of his life, cultivating a successful London career, primarily through the publication of his Irish Melodies song series. In taking traditional Irish tunes, setting the tunes to English texts, and in promoting the song settings, largely to English audiences, Moore has aroused controversy. His work has been perceived as an exploitation of Ireland's traditional and cultural heritage, particularly by antiquarians and nationalists. Further criticisms of Moore centre around the implicit references in his work to Ireland's political situation and a failure to publicly affirm his position. Yet, no matter how we turn the lens, it cannot be denied that the Irish melodies offer an example of Moore's response to Ireland's political situation. And the song collection provides an excellent case study for examining the ways in which Irish national identity has been articulated through cultural activity. Mm. Therefore, Moore's cultural presence and reception in 19th century Paris informs us about perceptions of Ireland and its political and cultural heritage in a wider 19th century European context. Just as 19th century Dublin was adjusting to the profound political and societal changes effected by the Act of Union, cultural activity in 19th century Paris was evolving in the wake of the French Revolution and Napoleonic regime. The Paris Conservatoire played a central role in the cultivation of musical activity during the 19th century and served as a feeder into the city's wider artistic infrastructure, which included opera houses, theaters, instrument makers, composers, and teachers. It was viewed that music could reflect sentiments associated with liberty, citizenship, and nationhood. Thus, the proud cultivation of musical activity led to the establishment of a distinct school of pedagogues, the establishment of several opera companies and the promotion of salon culture, while the system of private patronage endured, facilitating the dissemination of musical works between amateur and professional musicians. These activities, in addition to the establishment of a library of national music, promoted aspects of French patriotism, heritage and nationality. Perhaps owing to the link between musical activity and wider political agendas, there was a desire to progress and to develop French culture in a meaningful way. And it is within this context we observe the emergence of the French Romantic style. Compared to Dublin, Paris clearly had the resources to develop musical activity and embraced opportunities to do so, thus reinforcing a sense of national identity and cultural ownership. Thomas Moore lived in Paris for a period of almost three years, between December 1819 and November 1822. He moved there to seek refuge following a scandal for which he was held accountable. In 1803, Moore was appointed registrar to the Vice Admiralty Court in Bermuda. Within a few months of his appointment and his arrival there, he appointed a deputy. However, a number of years later, he learned that the deputy absconded with £6,000 leaving Moore accountable for the debt. In 1819, Moore decided to leave England for France to avoid arrest. Therefore, his primary reason for going to Paris was not a search for religious, political or artistic liberty. The opportunity to reside there for a period offered him refuge. Moore's final decision to go there appears to have been influenced by his friend, Lord John Russell, who certainly highlighted all the city had to offer. This was a particularly unproductive period for Moore. He engaged in very little creative practice, spending much of his time socializing. No doubt, this lack of creativity may be attributed to feelings of displacement and his thoughts must have been preoccupied by concerns over the Bermuda scandal. While living in Paris, Moore changed address a number of times, appearing to favour areas close to the Champs Elysees, such as Allée des Veuves, now Avenue Montaigne, and Rue d'Anjou. He also relocated to Sevres for a while, which is an area in the southwest of the city. Moore's letters and journals are crucial to identifying his activities and the networks he cultivated while in Paris. The following excerpts from Moore's journal, which date from shortly after he settled in Paris, exemplify a typical evening's activities and as we can see his attendance at the opera was de rigueur dined with lord granard and he and i went to the italian opera the barbiere of rossini light and trivial like a ballet from beginning to end went to seek for Viotti in order to get permission to attend the rehearsal of spontini's new opera Olympi. this evening, met him and he promised to admit Lord G, myself and Fitzgerald. The rehearsal, very singular, the stage lighted up, all the scenery in form and the actors in their everyday clothes. The music too full of notes and overloaded harmonies and the way it was squalled and meowed out by madams Branchia and Albert, detestable. Went afterwards to Coulon's Ball, where all the fee d'opera go. These excerpts demonstrate that during this time, Moore maintained Anglo-Irish networks and engaged with popular culture and musical activity while the following excerpt provides an example of the contexts in which he identified suitable tunes for his National Air Song series, thus reflecting the modes for cultural dissemination and exchange in 19th century Paris. Music in the evening, Pierre and his daughter sang, he in the buffo style, and very well. Seems a fine, hearty fellow. One of the things sung by him and her and Flau was an air that they sing to the bagpipes at Roman Christmas time. It is harmonised by Pierre and is very pretty. I must have it for my national melodies. These excerpts demonstrate that more integrated into Parisian life, particularly its cultural scene shortly after his arrival in the city. Moore was known for performing his Irish melodies to select audiences. Joanne Burns has highlighted how Moore's musical performances in the English drawing room served a dual purpose. While these performances gently introduced Irish politics to English audiences, This activity also enabled Moore to promote his work. The following excerpt reveals that he continued this practice while in Paris. Dined 10 or 11 of us at the Two Swans, Lord Macy, General Fitzgerald, Sir J. Burke, Douglas, Williams, etc., etc., a very jolly day. Williams and I sung some of the Irish melodies together and our voices went admirably together. We see here that Moore's songs adopted a multi-layered purpose and function. While in the context of, sorry, while in the English context, the political aspect was most pertinent, it would appear that in the Parisian context, The songs may be classified simply as entertainment pieces. Nonetheless, the London and Parisian performances collectively demonstrate Moore's astute aptitude for promoting his work, thus utilising opportunities to do so as and when they arose. As evidenced in his letters and journals, Moore's relationship with Parisian publishers jean-antoine and goyem galignani is very important and endured beyond his stay the publication of moore's work by the galignani brothers reflects the growing trend for the publication of english books in france from 1800 to 1852 a phenomenon which has been documented by giles barber the increasing number of English tourists visiting France from the second decade of the 19th century resulted in a growing market for texts in the English language. Parisian publishers could produce compact English language editions of popular poems and novels by writers, including Byron, Scott, and more at a fraction of the price of their English counterparts. This practice, of course, caused problems in terms of piracy. The effect of unauthorised publications on William Wordsworth has been considered by Thomas Owens, who raises questions relating to authorial agency, power and anxiety. Owens tracks Wordsworth's struggle to maintain his place in the market while safeguarding his artistic integrity. As highlighted in the examples listed here, Moore experienced similar struggles and was keenly aware of issues of copyright following a litigation battle between his London and Dublin-based publishers, James and William Power. The legal dispute led to an eventual split in the power firm and the publication of pirated editions of the eighth number of the Irish Melodies by William, the Dublin-based brother. In 1819, Paris-based publisher Galignani published Moore's complete works in six volumes. In this first excerpt, we learn of Moore's thoughts on the matter called afterwards at Gallignani's, had already purchased for 40 francs his complete edition of my works in six volumes. Cruel kindness this, to rake up all the rubbish I have ever written in my life, good, bad, and indifferent. It makes me ill to look at it. The next two excerpts from Moore's journal Give us some insight into his negotiations with Galignani over publishing rights for his works. Went out with Galignani to confirm the document I gave him on Thursday by signature before a notary. Have all along felt scruples at putting a false date to this paper, but felt these scruples still more still more strongly, after confirming it thus formally by a second signature. Begged Galignani to suspend further proceedings in the business. Went and consulted Leroy, Villemil's notary, who thinks some mode might be adopted, plus conforme à la vérité. I begged of Galignani to let it be done in this way, and that I would most willingly refund the money rather than sign anything colourable or false, even in form. At half past four, went again with Galignani to his own attorney, who seems to think the affair may be arranged so as to meet my scruples and yet secure the property to Galignani. Went out at ten o'clock to Galignani's and attended him to his notary, where a paper was drawn up, dated at the time when I actually did agree to transfer the right of publishing, which I, of course, very willingly signed. Moore's letters, particularly to his primary music publisher, London-based James Power, reveal that he regularly asked his publishers to make revisions to subsequent editions of his work. The time pressure imposed on Moore by Power ultimately resulted in numerous errors and, to some degree, a loss of artistic integrity and accuracy in his work. This is particularly evident when comparing reissues of the Irish melodies and is an area which is currently receiving attention from Sarah McLeave, As highlighted in this next excerpt, from a letter to Gallignani. analysis of variant readings is not only pertinent to reissues of Morris' song collections, it is also highly relevant to studies of his textual works, and has significant implications for analysing Moore's creative process. Dear Sir, in case you should venture to reprint the fables for the Holy Alliance, I send you some corrections which, owing to the miscarriage of a proof in its way from me to town, were not made in the last sheets of the first edition. You will, of course, see that they are attended to in your edition, if you print one. While Moore's dealings with Galignani facilitated the dissemination of his work on the continent, the business dealings between the author and the publisher had wider implications for the English book trade. In many instances, london publishers owned the copyright to published works and not the authors and as described in james Barnes's 1961 article galignani pursued thomas moore for the french publishing rights to his life of byron this resulted in london publisher john murray paying more out of his own pocket in order to avoid a situation where Galignani would gain the copyright in France. Copyright was a contentious issue for authors and publishers alike. The book trade was a serious and commercial business and the benefits of gaining access to the continental market had to be carefully considered. Galignani's interest in Moore's work demonstrates that the author, poet and songwriter was considered to be one of the most successful writers of the early 19th century and one of the few English language authors who could sustain readership in the continental market. More regularly featured in the Parisian Press demonstrating his works aligned with the aesthetic and philosophical criteria of 19th century French music and literary criticism. That is to say, his works were perceived as commercial, accepted as part of the popular repertoire, and reflected aspects of French Romanticism, particularly his fusion of the sister arts as represented in the music and poetry of his song collections. Influenced by Catherine Ellis's comprehensive study of musical criticism in 19th-century France, I have searched for and examined select references to more published in key journals: Journal des Débats, Correspondance des Amateurs Musiciens, Tablette de Palmény, and the leading 19th-century French journal, Le Revue et Gazette Musicale de Paris. Access to copies of correspondence and tablet has been limited and the digitized copies that I have been able to access via Gallica do not contain any references to Moore or his works. Accounts published in Journal des débats and Le Revue et Gazette Musicale de Paris have been most insightful, however. Articles published in Journal mainly consider more within a literary context, which is unsurprising given the fact its remit included domestic and foreign politics in addition to literary reviews. The focus on literary texts also highlights the emphasis on that particular art form within the wider context of the French Romantic movement. In Journal, Moore is considered in the same category as Byron and Scott, and the frequency with which La La Roque, The Irish Melodies, and The Loves of the Angels feature in the publication indicates the popularity of these works in Paris. It should be noted, however, that opinions and views expressed in many journals were not completely impartial. They frequently represented part of a wider marketing and promotional strategy, which was linked to increasing sales of newly published musical works. Several Parisian publishing houses produced music journals in addition to printing and publishing sheet music. Le Revue et Gazette Musicale de Paris was highly influential in setting the aesthetic tone for popular music in Paris, in addition to shaping the musical canon. Its purpose was to reflect opinion, to inform, and to educate its readership. References to Moore therein are significant when we consider its contents are or ordinarily included reviews about leading european composers of the day for example composers of the viennese school haydn mozart composers from the austro-german tradition beethoven mendelssohn schubert other topics included opera piano music chamber and concert music While examining copies of Le Revue, I was struck by one article in particular written by the renowned concert critic and reviewer Henri Blancard and published in an issue from 1842. The focus of Blancard's article is harpists of note, but he begins by providing a contextual history of the instrument. In this section, he dedicates a paragraph to discussing the significance of the harp in an Irish context, making particular reference to Moore and to his use of the harp in the Irish melodies. While Blancard does not name specific melodies, one instantly thinks of titles such as The Harp That Wants Through Tara's Halls and Dear Harp of My Country not to mention the various illustrations of the harp which featured on title pages and or covers in the song series. I paraphrase here in English, but Blancard refers to Green Aaron and describes how Moore's melodies have roused the hearts of the Irish against English oppression. He uses words such as lamenting cries and underpins the link between Ireland and France with his reference to religion, Catholicism. He also compares Moore to French poet-songwriter Pierre-Jean de Beranger, who was a contemporary of Moore's. This example highlights that in the 19th century Parisian press, More is considered and his work is understood within the wider context of Ireland's cultural and political heritage. At this point in the lecture, I would like to talk a little bit about Project Erin. Project Erin is a research project which I have contributed to and been involved with since 2015. It has received generous funding from the EU and its principal aim has been to examine the dissemination and reception of Moore's work within a European context, focusing on three main aspects, the Irish melodies, the national airs and the songs, operas and ballets inspired by or based on his epic oriental poem, Lalla Rook. Further aims of the project include the creation of a suite of online resources or research tools for use by scholars, musicians, students and the public. The resources are currently being showcased as part of the Moore exhibition here at the Academy's library. The principal resource is the AirIn online catalogue which serves as a uniform catalogue, uniting sources from across eight European libraries and archival institutions, as listed on the slide here. Each repository was chosen for the significance of its sources in terms of more scholarship and for the uniqueness of the printed music sources extant across its collections. Rather than having to search across eight separate library catalogues for printed music sources associated with Moore's work, scholars, musicians, students and the public can use the Erin online catalogue to search across these eight European collections. The catalogue will benefit scholars working from several angles, and particularly bibliographers. Those interested in more reception studies are the 19th-century publishing industry. All sources cataloged were published during the period 1808 to 1880, encompassing first publications, subsequent 19th-century reissues, editions, and arrangements. The end date of 1880 reflects the decline in national airs as a European phenomenon. And the cataloguing project is limited to printed music sources only, including libretti. Within this framework, a principal aim of my recent research has been to identify and to catalogue Parisian editions of Moore's works, specifically imitations or arrangements of the Irish melodies. The most interesting collection of sources in relation to this Parisian narrative are to be found in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and this collection of printed music highlights the extent to which Moore's Irish melodies influenced 19th century Parisian publishers and French composers. The Irish Melodies was undoubtedly one of Moore's most successful endeavours. The song collection contains 124 arrangements published across 10 numbers or volumes and were published between 1808 and 1834. For the first seven numbers, Moore collaborated with John Stevenson an experienced Dublin-based composer and musician. Stevenson was a vicar choral at St. Patrick's and Christchurch cathedrals and was a member of several Dublin music clubs and societies. His works include sacred and secular compositions, choral and instrumental works. Following the litigation battle and eventual split in the power publishing firm, Moore's collaboration with Stevenson ceased. He was more, he was more closely aligned with William Power and so was replaced by Henry Rowley Bishop, music director of Covent Garden and popular operatic and theatre composer. The creation and publication of the Irish melodies was predominantly a collaborative process. Moore selected traditional airs or tunes which in turn inspired his lyrics then Stevenson and subsequently Bishop composed the piano arrangements. The song series was published simultaneously in London and in Dublin and its popularity and success may be attributed to the musically rich and appealing assortment of airs which Moore sourced for the collection. Subsequent imitations and arrangements have tended to be inspired either by Moore's lyrics or the traditional airs, the traditional Irish airs that he used in his settings. In this final section of my lecture, I will focus on the following case studies, Neuf Mélodie, or L'Irlande, by Berlioz, and select arrangements of The Last Rose of Summer, all of which were published in Paris during the period 1830 to circa 1878. As we shall see, the publication of these works contributed to furthering Moore's reputation and cultural presence in Paris. And it will become apparent that leading Parisian publishers, including Schlesinger and Richaud, and creative artists, associated Moore with distinct aspects of Irish culture. Hector Berlioz was a leading 19th century French composer. He studied at the Paris Conservatoire and during the 1830s, he was a contributor to Le Revue et Gazette Musicale de Paris. He played a key role in the formation of artistic and cultural opinion in 19th century France. In 1829, Berlioz composed Neuf Melodies. As the title suggests, this is a collection of nine song settings. The first edition was published by Schlesinger of Paris in 1830. Circa 1849 to 1850, a second edition was published by the Parisian firm Richaud, under the title L'Irlande. A detailed critical analysis of the song collection has been provided by Julian Rushton, who also highlights the series of intricate links connecting Berlioz to Moore and his work. Illustrated on the slide here are the title pages for the earlier 1830 version, Nuf Melodie with the green cover, and the later 1849 or 50 publication, L'Irlande. So if we look at the title page for the 1830 edition first, Neuf Melodies with the green cover, Moore is clearly acknowledged as the source of Berlioz's inspiration, Imité de l'anglais, Irish melodies. The work is also dedicated to Moore, dédié par les auteurs, a Thomas Moore. While Berlioz's admiration of Moore is not in doubt here, The French composer clearly admired Moore's work and these acknowledgements appear most genuine. I would argue that the prominence of Moore's name on the title page, coupled with the use of a green cover, comprised a clever marketing tool, one which was most likely encouraged by the publisher, Schlesinger. This theory conforms with Emily Green's conclusions which highlight that in the mid-19th century marketplace, dedications printed on title pages functioned as advertisements, which ultimately influenced the reception and dissemination of musical works. It may be further argued, therefore, that Moore's reputation was somewhat exploited within the wider context of French song culture in order to promote Berlioz's work. The publication of Neuf Melody occurred relatively close to a time when Moore was in Paris, and the first French translation of the Irish melodies was published in 1823. Moore was clearly part of the French cultural psyche. If we now look at the title page for the republished and retitled L'Irlande, we notice marked contrasts between the two editions. The elaborate lettering, coloured paper and dedication to Moore have been replaced by an illustration depicting a woman holding a dagger in her right hand while her left hand is placed on a heart. This may be interpreted as the personification of Ireland, Hibernia or Erin, perhaps. It could equally represent liberty, Ireland's fight for freedom. The imagery conveys some acknowledgement by French music publishers of the Irish nationalist movement. Each edition also demonstrates that during the 19th century, there was clearly an appetite for Irish culture within the Parisian market. Moving on now to arrangements of The Last Rose of Summer, La Dernière Rose d'été, published in Paris. Printed music for seven arrangements of The Last Rose of Summer are extant at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. These include six piano arrangements, including one duplicate and a single song setting. All sources were published in Paris between 1850 and circa 1878. The Last Rose of Summer is one of the most popular songs from the Irish Melodies series. It was first published in 1813 in the fifth number and was subsequently reissued as a single or in single sheet format by Moore's primary music publisher, James Power of London. It is set in three verses to the air, the Groves of Blarney. The scale and scope of its influence on European composers has been captured in Axel Klein's comprehensive catalogue, which records 198 arrangements or utilizations of the air all of which were published during the 19th century alone. Parisian published piano arrangements of the air reflect the wider development of piano culture in the city at that time, particularly the virtuosic settings by Mendelssohn and Thalberg. A brief examination of the title pages for these seven works demonstrates that Parisian publishers became less reliant on Moore's reputation to market arrangements of Irish national heirs. As we can see from the titles listed on the slide here, only Caroline Eugénie's arrangement includes an acknowledgement or any reference to Moore on the title page. This arrangement is interesting since it represents the increased participation of amateur female musicians in song arranging and highlights the significant contribution women made to the dissemination of romantic national song during the 19th century. We can see from the list here that a number of prominent Parisian firms published arrangements of The Last Rose of Summer. The air was considered commercial and ultimately appears to have outgrown its initial associations with Moore. In conclusion, when considering Moore's cultural presence in 19th century Paris, it is clear that his work encompassed both the musical and literary worlds, thus stimulating a clear response from the Parisian press, music publishers and composers alike. There was an understanding of Ireland's cultural and political heritage across certain media. Moore's Irish melodies contributed to this narrative and, on occasion at least, his works were considered within that wider framework. Ultimately, Composers and publishers were attracted to the artistic worth of the melodies and selected arrangements or airs based on the wider objectives of French Romanticism. Parisian piano and song culture. The lecture I have presented here today represents but one aspect of Moore's presence and reception in a European context. However, it is clear that the Parisian narrative is central to understanding the wider cultural significance of Moore's legacy. Thank you.